only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. 36 through 46. It's on page 832 in your pew Bible. It's Matthew 26, verse, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Let us pray as we come to God's Word together. Lord, we are incapable of plumbing the depths of what is happening in this passage and what transpired between the Father and the Son in these hours. We, Lord, are incapable of scaling the heights of your majesty, the majesty of God who humbled himself to this point, God who acted on behalf of helpless sinners, rescuing us and winning for us eternal life at such a cost. Lord, give us grace to understand, to especially to worship, to adore you, and to give ourselves up to you, you who have so freely given yourself up to us. Lord, we ask these things in the precious, precious name of Christ. Amen. I think one of the most difficult things in prayer for us, there are many difficult issues in prayer. Uh, one is being honest and broken before God, being as broken as we really are 
before God. And thinking that if I completely unburden myself, if I really say what's on my heart, if I really talk about my fears, if I really talk about how bad it is with me, I don't know that God would want to hear it. I don't know that God could put up with me. And, and we deny so much uh, wonder for ourselves. This, this is an amazing passage because Jesus expresses shocking things. He, it's interesting, of all the commentators that I looked at, Calvin probably, John Calvin, way back in the 16th century, dealt with this issue and seemed to be grappling with it more than anyone, is how in the world could Jesus, knowing the will of the Father, knowing that he had come to die, how could he ask this question at this time? How, how could he, as Calvin put it, it appears that he's almost asking, could I not be the Messiah? Could I just not be the Messiah in this way? Just shocking language. It, it, it makes us wonder what is going on. And so I think through this, though, we'll understand how devastating life is for us at times, how undone and unhinged we may be, and how we can still pour out our hearts in absolute darkness and blackness and shock before God. Of course, uh, as we'll see, this will point out the fact that Jesus, even now, is beginning to bear the weight of the sin of mankind. The first thing I want to talk about is the distress of Jesus and his human desire, the distress and human desire of Jesus. You know that phrase in the Apostles' Creed that has given people problems for good reason because it's hard to understand the meaning of this phrase. When after we say he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Uh, the difficulty of that is that we would say at the point of finish uh, of his work on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he told the thief that today you'll be with me in paradise. So to make that a temporal thing so that, well, after he was buried, he descended into hell, we would say, no, the scriptures don't teach that. So there's been a struggle to how do you grapple with that phrase. Some would just say, let's leave it out. It wasn't in the original Apostles' Creed, but it was attached along the way. Others would say, it, it simply means uh, when it says hell, it's Hades. It also can mean the grave. And it's just a profound way to say uh, he descended into the grave. He, he for sure was dead. But as Calvin and others point out, that sounds kind of redundant to say he was crucified, dead, and buried. He really went to the grave. Um, and so if it would be used, I think that the best use of the phrase is that it is a description. It gives some meaning to he was crucified, dead, and buried, i.e., that is, he suffered the effect of God's judgment. He descended into hell. And here, there's almost, it seems to me, a... Uh, 
picture as they descend uh, down into the Kidron Valley, which is just east of Jerusalem. And they go to the foot of the Mount of Olives to this place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. So it was likely an olive orchard as olives were all over the place there. And it was perhaps someone's uh, garden, someone's estate, and perhaps a friend of Christ that gave it to them because we read in other places that this was a regular spot for them. But as he was descending into the Kidron Valley and into Gethsemane, as he talks about how he feels, it's almost as though he began to descend into the punishment of God's judgment even there, at least to the awareness of it, at least to the frightening prospect of it, because he had spoken of it on many occasions. He'd spoken of the fact that the Son of Man must give himself as a ransom for many. And he knew what that meant. He knew these events were unfolding. He had said uh, many times that they will take my life from me. He had told the disciples to the point that the disciples would take him off as Peter did one day. He said, you can't talk about this. This isn't going to happen. This is not the way it's going to come down. And Jesus said at that point, get behind me, Satan. Well, yes, it is. He said in John that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. But here, it it appears that Jesus is completely unhinged as a human being. The distress and grief and anguish and shock that seems to hit him at this point. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I think it's the shock of this beginning descent into God's judgment. You see, when they come to arrest him, this is the very outworking of God's condemnation. It's worked out in the in this particular form. It's why he wasn't just ambushed somewhere, but he particularly was arrested and condemned by official authorities to reflect that he was being officially condemned by God on behalf of others. The innocent man. And so here, Jesus is entering into the horror of the judgment of God. And as many have pointed out, a lot of people have faced death in much seemingly braver ways and not falling apart. But Jesus fell apart. When he says, I'm sorrowful unto death... It's describing the ultimate, absolute, catastrophic intensity of the fear and horror that fills him. Edwards writes, Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. The church, Hebrews 5, the writer says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hill writes, This is an anguish that threatens life itself. But for Christ, it was 
becoming actively, truly now, suffering as the ransom for his people. He experiences an abandonment and and darkness of, we have to say, cosmic proportions, an alienation from his father that would eventually cause him to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the reality of that, that beginning taste of that, was hitting him full at this point, becoming the, the specter of a so identifying with sinners that he will become the uh, object of God's wrath against sin. This overwhelms his soul to the point of death. I've, I don't know how we can get at it. I've thought about someone who's just lost a family member in an unexpected, horrible accident. I think of the horror that filled John Piper when he learned, and I won't even describe it for the children's sake, the uh, violent death of his mother as she was in Israel. Does that get at the, the horror, the, the distress? And yet it was something he was anticipating Can you imagine just the horror and anticipation of going to tell your 12-year-old child, you have cancer, sweetie, and you don't have but a month to live? How could you do that? How Just the thought of what you would have to do. Or, Or imagine you're in a war situation and you and your family are captured and you've been told your loved ones will be put to death before your eyes one by one in the morning. And your heart is filled with horror at the thought of it. Well, a far greater horror filled our Lord Jesus as He thought about facing the unlimited wrath of His Father. John Calvin left the commentary back here. John Calvin writes this, It was not simple horror of death, the passing away from the world, but the sight of the dread tribunal judgment seat of God that came to him. The judge himself armed with vengeance beyond understanding. Our sins, whose burden was laid on him, weighed on him with their vast mass. No wonder if death's fearful abyss tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. And so we can't, we can't fathom, we can't understand what it would be, the ignominy, ignominy, the ignominy of which, as you may know, that word has to do with disgrace, it has to do with humiliation. Can you imagine the humiliation, the disgrace that he was about to undergo as the one supposedly cursed of God, but truly cursed of God, publicly acknowledged as the cursed one of God. I, I tried to imagine what would it be if you were arrested, you know, arrested. Some here know that, okay? But you're arrested in a very public place and your friends see and they watch you being taken away in handcuffs 
and the public shame and devastation of just seeing this happen to you. Jesus, to be arrested publicly, to be beaten, to be crowned with thorns, to be spit upon, to be stripped of his clothes and exposed and nailed to a tree. But the heart of it all, the heart of it all, what we see was the outward symbol of the true punishment and rejection from the Father as He bore our sin. And so a horror filled Him that we cannot imagine. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And it's this that should govern our treatment of His crying out, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the shock, it's the cry of anyone faced with a horrific circumstance just to immediately cry out. And amazingly, he exposes his heart, humanly speaking, he couldn't want to do this, you see, as a human being. He just couldn't want this to happen. And so he bears his heart amazingly to the Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Like the death angel passing over the homes in Egypt that were covered with blood. But his is the blood that must be shed. He's the one that must be exposed to the wrath of the Father. And so, here we have the distress. And because of that distress, the human desire expressed to his Father. And I want to come back to that uh, when we talk about prayer. So you have this distress and the desire of Jesus. And yet, in the second place, you have this determination from Jesus. He cries, and it's a well-known phrase, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Here's the amazing thing, and take encouragement that Jesus enables us to do this as well. As much as his human nature shrank back from the cup. And and in the Old Testament, the cup almost always referred not just to suffering, but to God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath being poured out. And certainly it means this now. This cup that he must drink. But as much as his human nature shrank from the cup, even more did he shrink from any thought of acting contrary to his Father's will. How can you be so utterly, absolutely devastated? No human being can even begin to imagine being cast into some, uh, to, to a darkness like this and everything within him just crying out. And yet, even at that moment, he gives himself into his Father's will. We're encouraged to see him say, even as the edges of God's wrath is breaking on him, as we were flying back from uh, Brussels or London recently, 
uh, on this missions trip, uh, we would see on the screen, as you've seen many times, the flight, and it would show where darkness is. And I think of that darkness coming upon the Lord Jesus here and Him experiencing the darkness of wrath coming upon Him. But He still says, My Father, My Father. He submits His will to the Father. He desires that above all else. And so for us, in the midst of the the greatest difficulties and absolute devastation, could we have that grace? See, Can we have that grace? If he has this distress, he also has this determination. And it is this determination that brought us salvation. It is this determination that I will do the will of my Father. He says in John, it is my food to do the will of my Father. And so even if my life, my whole being is being unhinged and pressed with grief to the point of death, even then I put myself in your hands. I entrust myself into your hands, O oh my Father. Mark has the actual word Abba, Father. And so there's a tender relationship that Jesus experiences even as he is faced with the prospect of bearing his Father's wrath. And here's the strange mystery and the infinite glory that is breaking out at this time of this thing that is happening between Father and Son. Uh, struggling, as it were, to bring salvation to us. Shaking under the weight of what He is doing for us. I think of the times people have, you know, lifted beyond their strength something and you think of they're shaking with everything in their being and they lift something off a a precious child or a loved one and, and then their whole body collapses and you, you, you sense this, that at the very roots of his being, he is shaking and falling apart and still gives himself up to his Father's will. Still he loves us. Still he is concerned for the disciples in the midst of it. Our glorious, glorious Savior. And that's why, of course, he falls on his face. And yet still gives himself up to his Father's will. And lastly, there's this distress and desire. There's this determination. But there is this demand that is placed upon us because of the prayer of Jesus. There's demand, the demand, first of all, of helpless vulnerability before the Father. You know, it's shocking that the ones who needed prayer, in a sense the most, would be the disciples. And Jesus calls them to watch and to pray. He tells them to begin with wanting the fellowship of their watching with Him, and yet they wouldn't give it to Him. They they couldn't see the importance of the whole thing. But here is Jesus Himself praying to His Father and And it appears, too, that he is seeking to get to a place where he can hold it together and and 
give himself to what he has to do. This should be encouraging to you and to me. That here is the Son Himself in humility and helplessness, praying, seeking His Father's help, crying out, depending on on Him, distraught before Him, bearing His heart before Him, dead honest about His fear and desire, making known His request. Even this request... Why not simply say with cool calmness, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. I don't care as long as I have you. It seems like a more noble prayer, you know? A prayer you might expect of the Son of God. And yet God reveals His Son in this way, wrestling with the Father, wrestling with His own fear and emotion, The shock of the descent into God's judgment. To cry out, I don't like this. I don't want this. I hate the thought of it. I'm trembling. I'm falling apart at this. I can't hold it together. But what I want more than anything is your will. I want what you want. No matter what. But I'm dying here. I hope that we can learn to pray in this way. It's amazing how often it describes Jesus praying, especially at critical times. Sometimes praying all night, sometimes praying early in the morning. Praying and praying and praying. Pouring his heart out to the Father. And then you think, this is the Son of God. In naked vulnerability... Something that offended the early church because it was too vulnerable. The early church and the medieval church, they saw it was contrary to what the Son of God should do. It was denied in many ways that this was real. So helpless vulnerability before the Father... But then submission uh, to His will in the midst of it. Prayer here, and prayer in every case, recognizes the absolute limitations that we have and what Jesus urges upon these disciples. And remember, here's Peter who said, "I would." after Jesus says, you will deny me, all of you will abandon me. He says, I will not. If everybody abandons you, I will not abandon you. And Jesus said, of course, you will deny me three times. And so there seems to be some correlation in the three times Jesus comes back and the three times that Peter will deny him. And then James and John are the two that say, hey, we want to be at your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus says, do you think you can drink of the cup that I'm going to drink from? Perhaps that's some of the reason, in addition that these were leaders and the ones he was intimate with again and again in his ministry. But to draw out, the best of people are weak and helpless. And we must constantly, always, there's a, there's a word for us, watch and pray. 
They were to watch and to pray so that they would be ready to stand with Jesus. Well, they not only didn't watch and pray, they just fell asleep over and over and over again. And when they came to arrest him, they fled. They completely failed because they didn't realize what they must do. Here's the son preparing himself so that when they come, he goes to meet them. He's made ready by pouring his heart out, perhaps for hours, as he is completely undone at the thought of everything. And then the father strengthens him and he goes and does what he had to do for our sake. You see how different that is from us. We go forth in pride every day when our Savior, our Savior is exhibiting this helpless dependence upon His Father that there is no way that He Himself could complete the Father's will apart from the Father helping Him. How much more for us, how much more for us Rao says, it's a mark of faith to keep nothing back from our best friend, the Father. And when Calvin talks about this, he says that he came and left his requests on the knees of his Father. We constantly must put everything in the lap of our Father, no matter what our struggle and difficulty. And it gives us freedom to, as the psalmist say, many times, and as Jesus profoundly says here, that we will face difficulties and emotional strains that push us to the edge of even sanity. That we will struggle with devastation to a point that everything, it's almost as though we black out, you know, spiritually, mentally, because we are so shocked and dismayed by what has happened to us or what has happened to someone else. I felt some horror reading accounts of what has been done to people. And I've suffered some things of what's happened within our families. And here's the danger. It says in Luke that they went to sleep because of their sorrow. And I would use an analogy here, that of being washed overboard. Of course, if you're in a storm and you're on a ship, and let's assume the ship is going to make it, and you've got to be outside managing and, and working with the ship in order for it to make it, boy, above all things, don't get washed overboard because it's, it's all over if you do. And I believe that's what the enemy wants to do with pain and distress and difficulty in your life and my life. His, his intent and what Christ was praying for them, he said even to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you and I will restore you. But you see, if left to himself, if the disciples, if we are left to ourselves, Satan will sift us out. He will use pain and difficulty to wash us overboard outside of trust and and hope in Christ. 
And so always, as you face the hardest things, the most unexpected things, the things that it's the last thing you would have ever wanted to happen to you, the last thing you ever would have, would have wanted to go through. And, and many times it even seems like God just specifically, carefully allows you to suffer in a way that particularly devastates you. It is all, all for the intention that you might come and lay your concerns in his lap, on his knees, as Calvin would put. To do as our Lord does here in the most honest, shocking way, to say, let this cup pass from me. Describe to him exactly how you feel. Describe to him exactly what your desires are. Describe to him exactly what your sins are and and how black and dark they are and how they scare you. Sometimes as you look at your own sins, unburden your heart before the Father. This is the demand of Jesus. And as well, obviously, the demand of Jesus is that we put ourselves in His will. Do you value the will of God? It's in the very Lord's Prayer itself that is so uh, familiar here. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, you and I will only value His will if we are valuing His Word, if we are meditating in that Word, welcoming that Word, discussing that Word, meditating, uh, memorizing, giving ourselves to that Word. You think of the angels and that very prayer is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's a prayer to say, can we obey You? Lord, enable us to obey You even as the angels do. And you think of the angels It's always amazing the contrast between the angels and us because they're ready with the sense of, I can't wait. I can't wait till he tells me something to do. It's all I'm living for. That's what the angels do. They're just waiting for the next word, looking and, and immediately, joyfully, fully they carry it out. And if... If you could picture us, sometimes it's as though our backs are turned and our, our hands are over our ears and we're running away. Hoping He doesn't tell me something. Not wanting to hear it. Not wanting to delve into more of it. But this attitude of the Son by which He said, My food is to do the will of my Father, even when he was absolutely devastated and literally could not stand as a human being. He said, this is what I want, is your will. It's really all he had at that point. He had nothing else but just the one light of the will of the Father that was his life. God will save you so that you want to do his will. You can't just push a button and say, well, you know what? I'm going to do the will of God from now on. He will save you through Jesus Christ. He will so reveal the beauty of Christ and unveil that more and more to you that you will be more and more given up to the will of this glorious Savior and this glorious King. May we be able to say with the Lord Jesus, not my will. But thine be done. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have acted on our behalf. 
bearing the wrath of the Father for us. No, Lord, this, as Spurgeon says, is the holy of holies for Jesus' life on the earth. And we, we see, as the Greek Orthodox liturgy says, the unknown sufferings of Jesus Christ. We can't fathom it, but Lord, we can rejoice in it. We can rejoice that you willingly took this on yourself so that we would not bear the consequences of our own sin, so that we would not bear the punishment for our own sins. Oh Lord, we thank you that you so acted on our behalf and that trembling under the weight and devastation of it, you still gave yourself for your people. Your heart set upon your Father's will. Your heart set upon the salvation of your people. Lord, you are a gracious King. And of all wills to be obeyed, yours is a glorious one. To obey the will of one who commands out of this kind of love for us. Oh Lord, may we see your love. And as Paul says, you died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Bring it about in more and more lives in this place, Lord. Bring it about for each one of us. that Even this week we will take drastic new steps to give ourselves up to the will of our Father, the will of our Lord Jesus, who gave himself up for us. Lord, we will not, apart from your grace, we will not, apart from your Spirit changing us, but we put ourselves into your hands and say, Lord, save me. Save me from the inside out. Save me emotions. Save my desire. Save my motives. Save my eyes. Save my hands. Save, save my tongue. Save my feet. Save me, every part of me, Lord, that I would be given up to your will. We thank you that you raise us to new life so that we will be instruments in your hand. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. Save us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my Blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away